Today's sponsor is Eva, the best AI repricer for Amazon profits. Private label sellers, are you wasting your cash? Eva reprices your products for you, and the result is up to 50% more profits. Eva serves hundreds of seven-figure sellers in the USA and is now out for British and European sellers as well. For a 15-day free trial, go to amazingfba.com forward slash Eva. That's amazingfba.com forward slash E-V-A. Ladles and jelly spoons, boys and girls, welcome back to the 10K Collective Podcast, the place to be for six, seven and eight figure Amazon private label custom product sellers. This is getting more and more detailed as I go because I'm, I'm always trying to make sure we, we reach out, you know, message to market match and all that. But today we are really focusing on those who are at least considering either one day or maybe quite soon selling an FBA business. And today we're talking with Thomas Mail from FE International. Thomas is the founder and CEO of the company. They've been in business, I think, 11 years now. Serial entrepreneur and M&A expert, and they've sold over a thousand businesses. So he's in an awful lot of business go across his desk, unlike quite a few uh, of the players in the Amazon space who seem to have been coming to existence like literally months ago. And I've spoken to a few of them and they're very charming and they may know some stuff, but they don't have that level of experience. So uh, it's good good to have some of the experience. Thomas, welcome back to the show. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me back. My pleasure. So today we're talking about selling to Amazon aggregators versus brokers. It's funny that the word aggregator has gone from something you might think had something to do with, I don't know what sounds vaguely so like an agricultural implement to every, everybody's talking about it. Everyone's creating one, it seems, you know, every five minutes. Uh, so I think it's a really important discussion to not only have, but we've had that discussion before, but to refine and sort of think about the landscape as it develops. So first question is then, what's the difference between an Amazon aggregator versus an FBA business broker, if that's even the right word? And then there's the word M&A advisor as well. So how does that all pan out? Yeah, so I mean, if you just look at like definition, this business broker, M&A, or mergers and acquisitions, essentially the same thing, say in general, M&A firms like FE, for example, tend to work on slightly larger deals. Although we work on anything in the Amazon space, particularly generally like a million dollars valuation up to over a hundred million. So a real range in there. But generally most brokers or M&A firms will specialize on a certain size, certain industry. Just so happens we have quite a large team. We deal with quite a broad range of businesses. Aggregators, I guess, have almost like branded themselves as aggregators, but essentially they're what most people would call like a private equity firm. So they have private money essentially whether that's debt or equity and they're using that to acquire businesses and then the aggregator element is just the fact they are aggregating those businesses and running them all together so very much like a traditional private equity structure that most people hear about most people are like, oh, i always want to sell my business to a private equity firm or a strategic or a public company or whatever it might be but amazon aggregators are essentially just private equity firms that just or primarily by um, Amazon businesses. I guess one of the, the primary differences is if you hire uh, an M&A firm like Hefe International, we're a service, so we represent you and we will go find you a buyer and we will negotiate with traditional private equity firms, private companies, strategic buyers, individual buyers, aggregators, um, whatever it might be. I think there's a little bit of take misinformation but i think a lot of people think that aggregators is the only one buying businesses yes there are aggregators out there who have raised a lot of money have access to a lot of capital and are buying businesses but private equity firms outside of that who do not brand themselves as aggregators also have billions and billions of dollars and have done for 
since the beginning of FE, so 11 years ago before anyone even knew about buying Amazon businesses, there were still billions of dollars out there to acquire companies. That's not changed. I think the aggregators have just done a good job of branding them in, branding themselves in an approachable way. So the, the primary difference is you you hire us and we will go sell your business and we will negotiate with various buyers. We'll reach out to different buyers, whereas aggregators will buy your business off you themselves. They won't charge you any fees. They'll just buy it directly. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I guess that the obvious question that, that follows that is, okay, well, I could negotiate. And <laughs> I guess that many of us uh, have this kind of entrepreneurial idea that we can turn our hand to anything. And to, to a degree, it may be true, but I guess that the temptations think, well, I could uh, negotiate with 10 aggregators if I can go out there. And I'm sure that a lot of people get an email a week from an aggregator. They've got a desirable looking business anyway at the moment. At least the people that I work with tend to the clients I've got. And therefore the temptation is, I don't need a broker. That's a, a waste of time. They're going to take my precious money. So <laughs> this is the obvious uh, thought. So as a broker, it's obviously a, a fairly loaded question, but we've got to deal with that. What, what's your response to that? I mean, so firstly, you definitely can. The, the, the reason you hire a, a broker or an M&A firm is not because we're the only ones that can sell your business. It's because we have the experience and the, the leverage with other buyers. That we can just get you more money on aggregate. So similar to hiring a good accountant or a good lawyer, like you don't, an, a good accountant should save you money. Yes, you might have to pay them a fee, same with a good lawyer, you, might have to, you have to pay them, but they will, they will save you money. Exactly same with us. Yes, on a million dollar deal, for example, to use a very simple example, you'd be paying us 15%, which sounds like a lot. But if you, even if you just take the maths involved and you completely ignore any of the service elements and you discount that down to a value of zero, if you can sell your business yourself to an aggregator for a million and we would have got you, say, 1.3 million, even by the time you've paid us a, a fee, you're going to end up ahead. But there are lots of success stories out there from people who have sold directly, but they have no idea of, they obviously they've been told by the aggregator, this is like the highest multiple they've ever paid, like, which is what they'll all tell you. All of the buyers will tell you like, oh, this is a great offer. No one's ever going to pay more. Best deal we've ever offered anybody. And they'll successfully buy it. But because there's, I guess, a lack of transparency over kind of valuations within the industry. Like we've we've closed over 1100 deals now, over a billion dollars in in value. So we can we can leverage, negotiate, bring more buyers to the table. You might be able to find a list of you know, 20, 50 aggregators yourself and reach out to them. But generally in any sort of M&A process, we're reaching out to thousands of buyers as part of the, part of that process. So at the very least you know, if, if you work with us and we sell your business, that there's realistically no other buyer out there in the world that would have paid more for your business. Whereas if you just send it to an aggregator, yes, they might buy your business, but you've missed out on 99% of the buying community that have not kind of branded themselves and positioned themselves as someone who buys a business directly. Because if you think about, if you just think about their economics, if you're an aggregator and you have to go sponsor events, sponsor podcasts, sponsor communities, whatever it might be, you're literally spending money to buy businesses. So your economics have to, have to make sense and work for you. If you're a more traditional private equity firm, they tend to stay, I guess, as the name suggests as well, like very private. And obviously it's called private equity because they're using private money, not because they're private, but they do also, like you go on their website and it's just like 
three partners and they call themselves something capital, whatever it might be. You can't really find much out about them, but they have a lot of different companies there. They're, they're usually spending literally zero money on marketing. So they can generally pay more for a business because all they do is buy and improve businesses. Whereas aggregators have a huge amount of overhead just related to just related to persuading people to sell their business to them directly. So while it may well be the case that we could run a process and the aggregator ends up being the highest bidder, I'd say it's reasonably uncommon, but also they will have to pay more through us than they would do with a, a private deal. So you can definitely go chat to the aggregators. You, you just, I guess you do not know what you do not know. So yes, you might have a successful sale, um, but what have you left on the, on the table? In my experience, we can almost always negotiate a better deal than you can yourself. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And and I, I would just encourage people generally to go and speak to plenty of people before you decide who you're going to get into bed with. I mean, aggregators and brokers, really, because it's just an educational experience, right? Uh, you wouldn't try and sell on Amazon without, you know, the, the famous thing everyone goes and watches, pod, listens to podcasts, including mine, I, I guess, and, and looks at YouTube videos and what have you. And the same with selling, I guess you've got to educate yourself. But the difference is you really want to be dealing with experts, and conversations are going to be educational but as you say not jumping into bed with somebody immediately probably so then talking of which just talking about the time scales presumably in aggregators one of the, the selling propositions they have is very simple we'll give you whatever it is maybe a lower multiple but quickly is, is that accurate and, and how does that sort of stack up in your experience in that? my experience is that's not really true if your business is perfect then maybe yes but one of the big things we do if we um so i guess the my very first answer is that if you're selling to, depending on what your time is worth, but I'd say in almost all cases, in my example, my simple example I used of, you can sell for a million dollars yourself. And let's say you can get that money in a month or you can sell through us. And let's say it takes two and a half months to get 1.3 million. You're making, even by the time you take in fees, an extra $100,000 for an extra month and a half of time. For almost all people, it's worth doing an extra month and a half of work and it's not even work that you're doing um to get there so one of the big things we do as part of our process is we spend two to three weeks on average auditing your business so we literally have a team of accountants and their job is to put your financials together so if your business is absolutely perfect you're going to get through a due diligence process without issues but the reality is every single business has challenges so we front load a lot of that work so it might take us three weeks to do that audit work. <clears throat> and then we'll go run a, a, a bidding process. We'll reach out to a lot of buyers. We, we generally intentionally take, depending on the size and the complexity of the business, it might be two to four weeks to get bids on the table. Yes, we can get you an offer literally on day one. But in most cases, the day one offer is not the best offer you're going to get. So if you just take an early offer, you're essentially losing leverage. So we run a bidding process. We got multiple buyers into the process, which does take a bit more time, but it's entirely intentional. If you want less money, you want to speed up the process, you can, but almost everyone we work with wants to maximize value. Um, and then there's a due diligence process, which every single buyer has to go through. In almost all cases, once you've gone through our audit process, that will significantly increase the, the speed that a deal can get done because all buyers have to do due diligence whether they're aggregator or not like they're using other people's money whether it's borrowed whether it's equity or whatever it might be they have to follow a, a process so yes they might tell you they can close in 30 days but if your financials are a mess 
it can run. We've seen deals which run six months to a year where someone's tried to sell themselves because the buyer has kind of made up various excuses as to why the deal needs to take um, longer and they've just dragged it out. And similar to my point about valuation, sellers don't know what they don't know. And buyers are generally very charming and have the ability to explain to you why, in their mind, at least their delay is entirely kind of normal and intentional. So on paper, theoretically, a perfect deal with an aggregator could go faster, but just time value of money, the opportunity cost of what you're physically losing in dollars between a deal will negotiate you and you, one you can get yourself is going to offset that time, even if it does happen faster. And in my experience, the vast majority of private deals end up going nowhere or just take forever. So yeah. on average, it will definitely be faster. Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, it's kind of uh, fielder's choice, as I think they say in, in this is the first time I've used an American sporting metaphor, so I may not be right with it. But in other words, it, as, they, as they say in baseball, you know, you've you got to make your own decisions as a business owner. But, you know, if you're going to do this more than once, I guess if you've done this, if you've sold a business three times and you've got a bit of experience, you might actually get wise to the, the rhythms and the sort of ways of behaving and and the sort of what people say versus what they do and all those kind of patterns that emerge you you get pretty savvy with buying your you know on your hundredth physical product deal you're pretty savvy about that right and i guess the same is going to be true with business but equally humility suggests that you get some expert help if you don't know what you're doing the other thing i wanted to ask about was just through the types of buyers because you mentioned that obviously aggregates are just one of many types of buying you're saying so you you've laid out a bit of a stall of uh, the aggregators traditional pe companies that aren't busy marketing themselves or have more money to spend and, and they're not really they're very literally private traditional buyers strategic buyers so just just kind of give us a bit of a flavor of the differences of those types of buyers and, and how they what they're looking for i guess yeah sure so uh, firstly there's a lot of overlap within those categories so a strategic buyer which everyone thinks they want to sell to i guess is anyone that has a strategic reason to buy your business so maybe i don't know i i used to work for an e-commerce business and i quit my job and i now want to buy a business Strategically, it makes sense for me to buy a, an e-commerce or an Amazon brand. Therefore, on paper, I'm a strategic buyer. So I think the word strategic buyer gets thrown around quite a lot. But in reality, that's a, a person or company that has a strategic reason to buy your business. And almost all companies will check that box when they're buying. So an aggregator, for example, their strategic reason is they are aggregating businesses. Therefore, their strategy is they need to buy businesses. Um, so it can get quite... like. Literally, I think most people think a strategic buyer is their biggest competitor. So an example of my sock business, they're like, okay, well, I don't know, Primark or H&M or whatever, they sell socks. They're going to be the biggest strategic buyer that wants to buy me. The reality is big companies like that are almost never buying small Amazon brands or even medium-sized Amazon brands. So we definitely reach out to them as part of the process. But generally on Amazon businesses, generally not going to be the acquirer. We have closed deals with public companies in the past. So the kind of companies that are literally traded that you can go buy shares in, you might already have them in your portfolio. They are acquiring businesses. They're generally not just buying Amazon businesses. They're generally buying other kind of businesses we represent. But public companies are out there buying businesses. Strategics, like I said, that's a real range of different buyers. Private equity firms, again, could be an aggregator, might not be an aggregator. Anyone who's raised private capital. It's usually a combination of debt and equity. So you have some investors and then they borrowed some money from a bank, borrowed some money from investors. Um, and generally the partners or the 
usually in the US, you describe it as the general partner. They're also putting some of their own personal capital in. So if you and I create a private equity firm, we put 100,000 in each, and then we go raise $10 million from kind of friends and family. Although I, I don't have any friends and family who have that kind of money, but we, we find some rich friends. They'll put their money in. We have $10 million. We, and then we call ourselves VZ Capital. We then have a, a private equity firm. So tons and tons of private equity firms out there with all sorts of different levels of qualifications and I guess all sorts of different levels of cash. You could find a, a company that you look at their website and it doesn't really tell you anything. They might have $10 billion in committed capital and their partners know how to do deals. Or you might come across a really fancy web and they might have no money at all. So then there are a few other types of buyers. I mean, one is just like individuals. So anyone that wants to buy a business, generally buying businesses below $5 million in valuation can be buying above that, but I'd say it's uncommon. Usually if you're buying above that, you're buying through a company or you're already established in, in some way. There are other types of buyers we generally don't work with at all. Probably one of the biggest problem buyers of my example of deals that run on for 12 months or never happen, what you describe as a search fund. So search fund is, I guess, like a private equity firm, but they don't actually have any money and they have no commitments. So they go find a business and they put on a, a fancy shirt or a fancy jacket like you have on. And then they go, they say they found a business and then they go try find find money. So it's, it's VZ Capital without the rich friends and family. So the reason they take so long is they, they turn up with a fancy jacket or whatever, agree a deal and they're like, yes, I'm going to buy your business $5 million. And their offer will usually be way above market because that's the only way they can get deals done. The sellers agree to the deal and then they go try find the money. And it can often take forever or just never happen. So we quite often, we get a lot of clients who come to us and say, hey, we've been talking to this buyer for 18 months. They said they're going to buy the business, but it's never closed. So I guess technically they are a valid type of buyer because some businesses close through search funds, just not that. I would say overall, that's pretty much all of the buyers. Like I said, almost all categories overlap to some extent, strategic, financial, whatever it might be, uh, but they're probably the main categories. Yeah, really helpful. Thank you. And the search fund, I like. I really like the idea of VC Capital. Although maybe I'm coming across as some sort of shyster search fund dude because of the, the jacket looking a bit too sharp or something, which is makes a change. I'm sure it is a nice say. jacket. L- looking too organised and too smart is probably not my common sort of default <laughs> default mode. I try to make the effort for the podcast, but that's an interesting point. That uh, joking aside, that a fancy website or a nice appearance or you know charming manner doesn't really. Um, matter what matters is that the funding i guess and then what are the other factors in somebody you you're this is where you probably do need a broker or somebody to to explain it but what are the other factors that you would look for in a buyer apart from having the money which is kind of basic you talked about strategic buyer but it's not necessarily a bigger deal as people point out so thank you for the reality check there what are the characteristics of desirable buyers apart from you know obviously the appearance yes we look at it a lot. A lot of it's quite subjective because as a, a lot of it depends on what the seller wants. Some people just want literally as much money as possible and they don't really care if they like or don't like the buyer. The reality is most people selling, when they start a process, they think they just want the most amount of money possible, which is our job, but it's also our job to balance kind of best deal in terms of dollars or pounds or whatever currency you're using, but also the best fit buyer because you want a buyer ultimately, even if you're getting 100% cash for your business, you, you want a buyer who's going to do a good job with it. Most people think they're not going to care. It doesn't really matter. But ultimately, like you say, people like their business and people like their children. And they're emotionally attached to it. 
people want to see their business doing well. So there are some subjective factors. So firstly, does the seller like the buyer? There's no right or wrong answer to that. I'd say in most cases, people get a vibe within the first 15 minutes on the phone, whether they like someone or whether they don't. It doesn't mean you can't sell your business to someone you don't like. And often, particularly, I mean, I like a lot of the aggregators. I, I know a lot of them. But generally, the people they have in like their M&A team, their deal team, are charming people and you're going to like, but they're ultimately not the ones actually running a business once they acquire the business. They have an operations team. Um, so you have to you have to like the buyer. Some people hate the idea of aggregators. Some people love it. Some people hate the idea of directly. Some people love it. Same with individual buyers. Some people hate the idea of selling to an individual because generally they're going to need a little bit more help and a bit more of a handover, but also they can sometimes be some of the, the best buyers. So yeah, likability. Do you like them? Um, Things we look at, like, have they done deals before? Uh, to my search fund example, anyone can find a business. Actually, then closing a deal as a buyer is much harder than it's, and as a seller as well. Like, for your first deal, it's definitely the hardest. We've done it a thousand, over 1,100 times, and I still learn things every time we close a deal. There's always new things that come up, but first deal is definitely the hardest. So have they done a deal before? Generally, not that we necessarily have a hierarchy. We don't have, like, a of a strict process around this, but generally we would put a buyer who's completed a deal before ahead of one who hasn't, all other variables being equal because it just reduces the risk. What kind of, again, this kind of falls into the likability, like what kind of experience they have. Have they run an e-commerce business before? An Amazon business, do you think they're going to run the business into the ground? Again, to the likability point, are you going to actually want to work with them if there's a, a problem? Are they going to get through due diligence? Do you think they're the type of personality that's going to renegotiate last minute, which happens all the time in, in private deals, less through less so through an M&A firm like us, because we tell them politely, obviously, like where to go. So those kind of deals don't happen. Do they actually have capital? Like that's one of the, the big, we always ask for proof of funds. So you have to prove you have the money before you can start the, the process. Just simply having like a press release saying we've raised $50 million doesn't actually mean you have $50 million ready to go. Often they still have to go through an investment committee or they might be to my example of like VZ Capital, fancy website, fancy suit, fancy press release, but it doesn't necessarily mean they physically have the the cash so i'm glad you're not working worth... on my marketing team here but yeah, yeah joking apart I, I think you you make a very valid point that actually again that there's something almost aggressive if i'm actually the seller of the business saying yeah so thomas send me your bank account and i'll believe you versus some intermediary doing it who does it as a very standardized process as well that's yeah true. so yeah. the relationship is a bit different there isn't it as well? for sure because sometimes we get people who are, will act insulted and they're like oh no i'm not sending you a bank account and we say, okay, well, you're not you're not buying the business. So a lot of sellers in that situation will be like, oh, okay, actually, well, you have a fancy suit, you have a fancy website. I'm just going to believe you when they push back and they say it's absolutely not normal to provide my financial information to to do a deal. Um, so we deal with it because internally, my team will sometimes try to get it past me. They'll be like, oh, Thomas, yeah, they they said they have the money, but they they don't have access to their bank account at the moment, so they can't send the bank statement. And we just say no. Any so dodgy when you put it like that. They don't have access at the moment. It's like, yeah, they're like, like, oh, they're like traveling call me back next week when you got when your bank <laughs> website isn't down then. I mean, looking to increase your online sales, join Ecom events at one of their four events throughout the USA. Miami in January, San Diego in March, Minneapolis in July and New York City in October.
The conference offers learning, tips and tools needed to increase your sales, networking, food and refreshments, prize drawing and lots of fun for all seller levels. Head on over to www.e-comevents.com and register today with promo code AMAZINGFBA to save $50 off your ticket cost. Yeah, we've heard heard all of the excuses. Um, But yeah, so like they have to have the capital or at least um, might not always be in the form of a bank statement, like don't always have $50 million sat in a savings account earning 0.01% interest, but maybe some form of commitment letter. Again, this is why you hire us because there's all sorts of different sneaky things people do to pretend they have money when they don't because they want to lock it down and then go find the money. Yes, um, that, that makes sense. I see that there is a really logic the, in that as well. I can see yeah. why that danger would exist because there's a logic from the aggregator or, or private equity or whoever, you know, search from whatever they're calling themselves. There's a logic sure. in getting you locked in and then you you have your business off the market and they're off, you know, they've got something concrete for which to raise money. So it makes sense that it's in their interest and not yours. So yeah, I can it, see it, why it would exist. Yeah. Exactly. I'd say they're really the main factors. I mean, there are other things you look at as well. Like, do you like the deal terms and stuff like that? But that's, again, somewhat subjective. Some people accept less cash for a faster deal. Some people want, they don't care how long they wait. They just want as much money as possible because of taxes or whatever it might be. Yeah, so I'd say they're the main things. But ultimately, it often is literally just as simple as how much do you like them? And likability has many different things that people consider. Some people care about some things, other people don't. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying. What strikes me very forcibly about this process, there are lots of numbers and lots of legal documents. There's a lot of very precise stuff. And yet the very decision to sell, it strikes me as a very emotional and kind of somewhat irrational it's a bit like the why do you buy the house that you you want to bring your kids up in well i guess because you like it and and at the end there there is something about that process that it's really struck me in having been sort of on the edges of a few of these deals now now and it's it's quite subjective and we have to allow for that we have to account for that and not pretend that we're going to be super objective right and also i think trust feels it's not quite the same as likability but it feels like what you're describing to me sounds like are they trustworthy as a business partner not as a general individual but you know have they got the money they say they have uh, are they going to run to the time scale they say they will are they going to you know do they actually have the experience they claim and so forth so that that's would be my sort of simplistic take on it there is sort of human characteristics as you're flagging up and and i guess a broker it strikes me has to have that blend of as you obviously have that savvy but also human element it's about relationships at the end of the day and also some places where you have a hard line of, of proof that you want and knowing that difference strikes me as much as art as a science really so. yeah it, it's very much a balancing act i mean sometimes just the the fact that we exist in the middle is is helpful because i always say to my team sometimes they're like oh it's a bit embarrassing because the seller like did something wrong and it makes us look stupid but if anything, I would say to the team, I'm like, well, if we look stupid and the seller does not, that's a good thing because we're representing the seller. And also just from an emotional perspective, we deal with, um, understandably, a, a lot of buyers and sellers on both sides of the table who get quite emotional. They can get quite angry. Some people shout, some people cry, like all sorts of re- completely human reactions. But because we're in the middle, it, it's fine. Like the buyer who's shouting down the phone because something is wrong. They're just dealing with our team. The seller doesn't necessarily have to deal with that because if that deal happened privately, deals would just fall apart. So just having a middleman, I mean, it's like in there are all sorts of industries where having someone in the middle makes 
makes sense. And it's exactly the same here. So literally just the existence of us can just improve the process because we're going to be more objective. Like I care about closing your deal, but I do not have any emotional ties to your business. But at the same time, I am a founder myself. So like I completely get it, but you're right. It's a mix of art and science. The accountants in my team will tell you it's more science. I'm more of a less of an accountant. I tell you it's more art. So it's definitely a, a, a mix. Blend of the two. Well, look, you, you clearly have a ton of experience to offer. So I know that if people want to get a free valuation, they can go to feinternational.com. If you mention the amazing FBA podcast, hopefully then they'll take care of you extra special. And uh, anything else you want to tell us about that sort of business valuation call or, or sort of initial call? No, I think the, well, the one thing I would say is like, it's never too early to reach out. I'd say we want you to at least be making some money, but you don't necessarily have to be ready to sell. It's better to be considering it in future because like we spoke about on a previous episode, you might be at a million dollars valuation today and you want to get to 10 million, or you might be at one and you want to get to 1.2. What we're going to tell you is going to be completely different based on your goal. Um, or you also might start adjusting your goal. A lot of people come to us with a goal. And then I know, for example, in my business, when I first started my business, the goal I had for revenue, we surpassed that a very long time ago. And I was convinced that when I hit that level, I would like never have to work again or never do anything again. But here I am 11 years in working harder than ever. And we're way past that level. So goals can change. So we're, we understand that. Like we've been through it very many times. Don't be afraid to reach out. The only thing I, I would ask some people is just be honest. So don't pretend you want to sell, but actually not. Just reach out, say, hey, I listened to the podcast kind of like this Thomas guy he had a nice shirt and they were talking about like credibility of buyers. I wanted to get like an understanding of the process. Do that. The team will be like happy to chat with you. Like I said, there's no obligation. There's no hidden fees. You don't get sent invoice or anything like that. You only pay us if you decide to engage us and we physically sell your business. Reach out. Don't be afraid. And if you don't want to speak to us for whatever reason, we have loads of content you can read or listen to this podcast again, listen to episode one of this podcast. And I know you've got tons of other episodes so don't have me in it that are useful as well. There's loads of good information out there for you to learn. Absolutely. And you guys have been in business for ages. So I know your blog has got uh, lots of useful content on it. I was having a browser that early today. So very, very good content there as well. If you're wanting to educate yourself and, you know, the more you learn, the more you earn as a, an old sales manager of mine used to say, I think it's just a space where being educated enough is critical, but also being humble enough to know you're not going to learn it all in one day and trying to you know talk to the experts always a wise idea so thomas great pleasure to talk to you a lot of useful for me new stuff particularly about the characteristics of, of buyers and the, the the people you you kind of want to avoid and the people that the characteristics of people that you might want to do business with and and the reality check on the subjectivity of the process really really interesting stuff hopefully very valuable to everyone listening so just remains for me to say many thanks for coming on our show today well yeah thanks again for inviting me my pleasure Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling, and I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.